from death to immortality. Lead us from darkness to light. Light us through and through, and guide us evermore with thy loving presence. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Peace, peace, peace. Good morning. I'm glad to see each and every one of you here this morning. Today we're going to have some fun. The subject is seeking the source. So I thought what we might do is go down on a diving bell. <laughs> when I was in Australia for the Parliament of the World's Religions in December, you sent me there, remember? At one point, there was a place we went into the coral reef area and they put a helmet on our heads and had a visor on it and all, you know, but right on our shoulders, and they pumped air into it. And they took one look at me, you know, and figured I'd ridden around the sun on the planet quite several times, and they said, you're at high risk. <laughs> Went down there to see the fish. It's just marvelous because they come right up to you and you're looking at them and all kinds of wonderful things happen down there. Swami Shivananda was seated in his room talking with a monk of the order. Several sadhus and brahmacharis were also present. In the course of the conversation, the monk said, emotion is all in all in spiritual life. Reason shows merely a small portion of the way. Swamitariyananda used to say that emotion draws one to spiritual pursuit, that intellect helps only a little. One cannot comprehend religion through reasoning and intellect alone. One of my favorite philosophers, uh, sometimes we talk about that a little between ourselves here, is Alfred North Whitehead. He's kind of a grandfather philosopher to us. And when he was at Harvard, William Ernest Hawking was a colleague of his, a contemporary. And he's the man that wrote the blurb on the back of the dust jacket for the Gospel through Ramakrishna, all kinds of wonderful things. And he said, analysis always falls short of truth. Now I'm going to ask you to imagine Dalarmat at an early day, earlier, much earlier day, when Swami Akilananda, one of Brahmananda's boys, you know, they sent six or more of Brahmananda's sons to America. Oof, what a dream they had. What a gift they gave. And what a responsibility we have. So Akilananda landed in Boston, and he was the psychology Swami, don't you know? He wrote a grand book on Hindu psychology one of the, actually the book, I would say, on Hindus, a couple of them, in which I would say the major premise is, if you want to kind of turn your minds around, that instead of the Western view, enhanced a lot by John Locke, you know, the stimulus response view, sensory stimuli, and then we respond, that something goes from inside our very soul and our very essence from the spirit, which is what we are, au fond, as they say in French, the foundation, the very essence of our being, the spirit, goes out to the eyes and ears and sort of wraps itself around, if you will, a beautiful lamp that's standing there. But the point of, I want to make this morning is that this day that we see him there walking pleasantly in the sunshine, at Lord, he's accompanied by a, a friend, uh, somebody walking along with him, Westerner. Who is that man? 
Who is that man? Oh, yes, it's Carl Jung. They were great pals. They were such spirit friends as I imagine that I think that they could have been holding hands. You know, in India they do that. Anyway, they were kindred spirits in a certain sense, deep sense. And it might interest you to know that Carl Jung's four personality types are exactly consonant with the temperaments of the four yogas. Now you know, it's a little provincial. John Dobson's got the idea that Swamiji's great suggestion to Tesla, you know, can you get up, can you come up with E equals MC square for me? I mean, that's putting a little, hit the ears of Tesla's friend Maleva Einstein and that she put it in the appendix when they finally got the data in 1905, which Tesla did. Tesla said, yeah, I think I can do that. What Swamiji asked him was something like, can you show me that matter is potential energy? Yeah, I think I can do that. I think I can do the math. And Swamiji wrote that out. He said he thought he could do it. Come back in three or four days, never came back because the evidence hadn't come in showing energy and mass to be equivalent. But anyway, John's got the idea that Maleva Einstein whispered that in Einstein's ear and wrote it in the back of his appendix herself, the uh, Russian edition of their work bearing both names as co-authors. She, she got her degree in physics first. So do you mind my wondering at least in the inner places of my heart if Akinananda hadn't said to him, Jnana, Bhakti, Raja, Karma, the four temperaments that we're born into, the four aspects of our being that we need and, and roll and weave into the very substance of, of our approach to life, our personality. Yeah, I think, I think it has to be the same. What, what Jung is talking about is four poker players, four men playing cards, we'll say, around a square table, and they're partners, don't you see? Now, for those of you in the room that are not quite ready for this cowboy image, well, it's a bridge, <laughs> you know, about these are. And across from each other, according to Jung, and I'll use the Indian terminology now, well, better use it, the man of heart, is playing across from his partner the man of spirit and introspection. And the man of action, his partner, is the man of knowledge they're playing together. So what I'm going to suggest today is that Raja and Bhakti Yoga, partners, friends, playing this great game with their other two good friends, the four of them, have a special relationship, special partnership, because I submit that Bhakti and Raja are the heart and soul of spirituality. Literally, don't you see? Bhakti Yoga, the path of love. Raja Yoga, the royal path, which is actually kind of a handle for all three others, whether it's a Karma Yogi or Jnana Yogi. But you understand that many of us do not see these things as radically separate. We just don't see it that way. And therefore, we're likely to think, hey, we got, we got kind of a synthesis view here. Isn't that what it's all about? <laughs> all seeing things as one. And yet we give primacy to Bhakti and Raja if you really want to get somewhere. Um, I'm quite impressed with the fact that we're all different in our inheritance, our biological inheritance, and to whatever degree our psychological inheritance. You, you might be interested to know that from my point of view, I see psychology based on biology, and biology based on a, a, a wider stone, if you see, chemistry, and chemistry based on physics physics based on spirit. And that's what the 20th century brought us, wasn't it? Most of those fellows, you know, that brought the atomic age to birth, they were mystics. They were mystically inclined and they said so. You don't have to take Schrodinger, who's called a photographer in the encyclopedia. But even, even, uh, oh, Max Planck. 
and some of the early ones, and of course Einstein and Niels Bohr and, and Heisenberg and all of them had an insight that something's going on in this universe, which is number one, beautiful, number two, wondrous, and number three, something mysterious, something inward, which you might even call sacred. Einstein, as a little boy, saw a magnet attract um, a nail or maybe the compass was moving. And he said something deeply mysterious lies within. Our friend Aldous Huxley took this rather far. He and I, I'll say, had a friend. I met this man once. I consider him a spirit friend of mine. Um, came up with a, an idea uh, sometime in the mid-century that we inherit from our parents a certain kind of body type. You know, the, the phrenologists used to try to do it with bumps on the head. That didn't work very well. But William H. Sheldon, I think, went as far as anybody had so far in saying that just as the cell divides into three layers right away, the, the, the one that will be our nervous system, our, our stomach, you see, and the muscles, so some people, well, everyone has indices of all three body types. There's a little bit of Hercules in every man, a little bit of Venus in every lady, you see, football player type. There's a thin person in everybody seeking to get out, some of us. <laughs> and then there is the, uh, the, the muscular and then the, the endomorphic, the Santa Claus personality. But every one of us, according to William Sheldon, has an index of at least one of the others. No matter how thin we may be, we have 10-1-1. as a morphic and morphic. Well, Huxley got a hold of that. And, you know, I like Huxley. But by golly, he could sure get out there in the, in the left out in the outfield and make some very quick assumptions, which India is slow to make. And we read those books, you know, perennial philosophy and so forth, required reading in college. He used to come here and say, I'm going to lecture at my little Taj next Sunday to tell his friends. I heard him once. And he thought that skinny people would be ghanis, you see. And rotund people would be bhaktas. And of course, the mesmores would be the karma yogas that, that build the bridges and skyscrapers and all that, action people. Well, I kind of fell into that trap because some of the things he said relate, I relate to. Uh, community living is a little difficult for skinny people. Can you guess why? <laughs> Most of the pacifists of the world I can think of, like Gandhi, you know, and, and Jesus to some extent, he had a, a component of ectomorph that they're, they're pacifists because they're skinny. I mean, Darwin would understand this immediately. They're not going to go very far anyway if they try to mix it up. Step outside, please. But when I came here, I assumed that the only path available to me would be the path of, say, knowledge. Immediately grasping some kind of a concept of the idea Atman and Brahman are one. And that's what I wanted. Overnight. Instantly. Oh yes, I wanted to find it in meditation. But then, Amohananda, who's 99 now, has come back the wonderful supervisor of our young days who when the place was much smaller did everything and uh, I remember once he ran into Swami Pavitrananda who was about as thin as a rail as you could get he was lying on the bed in Laguna Hills one summer uh, asleep in his suit when Bhadrananda went in to check on him you know that's where Swami Prabhupananda and Swami Pavitrananda in those days would spend their summers mostly in meditation solitude quiet sitting in the living room whatever and Bhadrananda who was a sturdy Englishman very sturdy fellow you know boots and all that and real Britannia he didn't see him in there <laughs> he thought only his suit was lying on the bed you know lay out there where he, he was in it Amohananda goes up to I want you to get this deeply because each of us, you see, is a unique individual, right? And when he got within three or four feet of him, he said, Moanan's a real sturdy guy and a real, a real practical, grounded man. He said, I felt he loved me. 
And I guess that's Nirvana's criterion. If he gets within three or four feet of a swami and he feels something, he says, I, I, want, I want some more of that. So Huxley was wrong about people just because of the, the suit they've been put in, the body they've been put in, what kind of temperament they're going to have, particularly since Vivekananda and Brahmananda both ask us over and over again to blend all four. I mean, my goodness, God gave us a brain on a right and a left hemisphere. He didn't give us that, give us that not to have any use. I mean, <laughs> this question, how much use we put it to as a human species. But all of these parts of this whole system, which is the human opportunity, are there for a reason. So I'm kind of asking for equal time today. They said that Sri Ramakrishna, the master, even in his later days, his end days, still remained the source and center of a strong spiritual current which transformed the lives of those around him. I would like to point out that I think of us all, I think of us all as snowflakes because we're unique. I'm going to call you Snowflake. We have this equipment that we've been given, which according to a person like Huxley, and I happen to want to follow that line of thinking along when he's, when he's writing that way. I listen to him quite a bit. He thinks that we are individually determined a great deal more in our temperament by our physiology, if you will, our inheritance in that sense, our genetic inheritance, than we are by the culture that we're born in. Well, you can argue both sides of the coin. But the temperamental differences within any culture, there are mystics and there are skeptics and there are all kinds of people alive at any one time in England and Japan, anywhere you want to look, is something that's very hard to deny. So here we come to this idea of spirituality with these inclinations, these personality types, and of course it it creates some kind of difficulty sometimes in communication, but the main thing is that's who we are. And the next question is, are we going to try to use it to find God? These fellows, of course, will try to tell us that that's the only thing that counts, you know, in the world. The way that... Uh, Huxley kind of discusses this in connection with an English mystic whom I like a lot named William Law. He says, any kind of individual can be born into any kind of social heredity. It follows that at any given period, the prevailing social heredity will be unfavorable to the full development of certain kinds of individuals. But some of these non-conforming individuals will succeed nonetheless and breaking through the restrictions imposed upon them by the time spirit, the zeitgeist. In being, let's say, romantics in an age of classicism, or mystics in defiance of a social heredity that favors born positivists, you see, skeptical scientists, objectivists, and natural materialists. Well, I think that this is something we have to take into account. So now thinking of our friends playing poker, I would like to encourage us a little bit to just play along with that, see where they're going, what their path might be, what it is that they're trying to hold out for, how they're trying to win the game, not over the others, but for themselves, you understand. I think the United States has changed a lot since I went to college at that point. Behaviorism ruled all of the crenellations, the little, you know, parts of the architecture on top of schools where the flags fly and the archers and the old They were in the whole of the, of the social sciences, philosophies, I mean, not philosophy, psychology and sociology. And it was very difficult to have a mystical orientation, even to love Wordsworth too much. Wordsworth is the man that got Vivekananda to, to, uh, to Ramakrishna, believe it or not. It's amazing, you see. <laughs> He heard Wordsworth in class, got inspired, and said, anybody around like that today? And hasty, I, I love it. I hope you'll not mind a little provinciality here. We give each other a lot, you know, because we come from every possible background. And the fact that 
Professor Hasty was Scottish. I, I think that's very funny. I love that. And he said to him, well, he said, if you want to find somebody who is steeped in this inner kind of spirituality, I suggest you go over across the Ganges. See a man over there at the temple, Dakshineshwar, a Ramakrishna. And then you can imagine Hasty as he gets up and throws his cloak over his shoulder, leaves the desk in front where Vivekananda's been talking to him. Says, hey, said, you do that. Go see him. Go see him. Go see him. So William Law is the English Episcopalian minister, if you want, mystic, quite a nice guy. He says the notion that any given historical period is homogeneous and uniform is based on the tacit assumption that nurture, that means social environment, is everything and nature nothing at all. On the contrary, it's manifest that wherever the nature of social and whatever the nature of social and cultural environment, individual physique and temperament remain what the chromosomes made them. So good morning, snowflakes. I expect each one of us, naturally, it's got a different path up Everest, the north face, the south face, but the joy that we have here, the community, the camaraderie, and the bond that we have, is we all know we're all going up toward God. We're all going up toward the top. How about this one? How about this one? Guide us, O oh God, on the path of perfect harmony, capital P, capital H. The path of those whom you've blessed with the gifts of peace, joy, serenity, delight. The path of those who are not brought down by anger. The path of those who are not lost along the way. Amen. That's from the opening of the heart. The translation of Suru, Surah al-Fatiha. It's Muslim, my friends. It's Muslim. I wish to emphasize the contributions of the men of heart and reflectivity because they give us hundreds and thousands of hints on the way. Now remember, these, these people are not different. They're all, they're all unified. And Vivekananda says, blend all four in your own personality. That's between, that's between you and God, if you like. And you can stand in it. You can stand for it. I think we can use the word seekers, even though we cannot say see God, don't seek him, because the life story of Swami Shivananda is called for seekers of God. When I was a seeker, I sought both night and day. I asked the Lord to help me, and he showed me the way. Hey. So now we're going down on our diving bells, friends, aren't we? We're having a little fun and see what happens. If your inheritance and temperament is such that each one is an individual, even highly individual, just the relation between you and your chosen ideal is what ultimately counts. We are all, of course, in our consciousness, exactly the same. But we have to get to the top of the mountain to realize it. Ghanis, the bhaktas, the people that designate themselves so, they'll all find exactly the same experience of infinite knowledge, bliss, and bliss means love. This bliss means joy at the end. I think that we have to realize that there are some things that are at the very heart of our search. And just as says the Ghani right from the start, you say, okay, I understand Atman and Brahman are one. Then he sits for the rest of his life twiddling his thumbs. What, what, what's he going to do? That's my question. What are we going to do when we come to that intellectual ascent, that Atman, Brahman, are one? But the kernel, I believe the kernel also for, for the man of heart and the woman of inner spirit is a very simple, simple thing. We, we, we may come to it early. We may come to feel that this is very important to us, like the heart of the walnut, you might say. And that is that Raja Yoga the path of meditation, which is common to all, is of such a nature that it has two parts to it. One is a discernment that the reality, which is one, 
which can be found within, inside, is such that we have to be discerning. They use the word discrimination. If we want the whole enchilada, if we want 100%, don't you see, it behooves us to realize that we're going to have to give ourselves to that goal, nothing less than everything, nothing less than all. So Jesus comes along, you know, and says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yoke, same word as yoga, union. Well, I suggest we sort of think about what he means because we don't believe normally when we enter spiritual life from outside anyway. It's going to be like, you know, easy. But why don't we at least concern ourselves? I, I think I'm going to sit down and say to myself, you know, I think I might take him up on it. I might try to follow his path. And the first thing that comes to my mind is, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to give up alcohol. This is something I hadn't thought about. I'm prepared to, to accept the fact that a feeling person seeking whole, the whole, holism, and a, and a reflective person is the way that I'd like to explore those paths as well as perhaps others. But I'm not sure I have it within me. And I would suggest to you, as someone has said, when you feel you have no rhythm, place your hand on your heart. The fact that in our North American culture, imbued as it is partly with the spirit of Northwestern Europe, which gave us great things, liberty under law, field, things like that, is not, especially for the men, a permissibly feeling culture much, enough. We'll do a lot of stuff with our left hemisphere before we figure out what it's a good thing to do or not. We'll build it and we'll shoot it off before we've really figured out what the full consequence is. And I say the men, it, it affects the whole culture, it affects those who have studied here, no doubt. We want to be the best of the East, the best of the West, our inheritance from the Greeks, our inheritance from India. And yet I have a feeling the women wouldn't have been so quick to do much of what the um, business world of America has done in the last hundred years around the world. So we're going to give it a try, but now we get this point, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. What is he up to here? Well, I suggest that in the case of, incidentally, I think that if we ever got around to it, that uh, our own encyclopedia, American encyclopedia, we'd have to have one volume on alcohol. I think it's very, very important to have one volume. Right back to the revolution and before those days, actually. Gonna have to give up alcohol. Not so sure about that. So then we get to this incredible idea that the Brahmanandas, the Prabhavanandas, the men of heart try to suggest to us, you know, my friend, I'm going up the mountain today. If you want to come along with me, you'll find out some point when you're ready, alcohol will give you up. You won't really exactly give up alcohol. You gotta try, that's sure. You gotta try to give up all smoke and whatever is bad for you. But the truth is that something happens to these people that changes their lives. And I submit to each one of my sisters and brothers here today for to whom I feel very close, each of you, that this is exactly what can happen when you put on the diving bell, the top part, helmet, sit down in silence, really in your own heart, could be in your own room, could be here in the temple, could be in your own room, or a place in the house that you set aside, a chair or something, and sit there some every day. You're an experimental scientist now. See, we've gone into the laboratory. Remember Swami Prabhupada used to say that if you get the chemistry book, my dad was a chemistry teacher, and say, oh, chemistry, chemistry, come to me and pound the book, nothing's going to happen. He said, if you take the almanac and squeeze it, you won't get a drop of rain. But the Indians will say, look, spirituality is experimental, it's experiential. Get yourself close to somebody inspiring. If you want to call him teacher, call him your teacher. If you want to call him your first base coach, call him your first base coach. But try to get a guide. And then, with the book, the teacher, you've got to go in the laboratory. That's why I'm probably not a lot of fun used to say and burn your hands on the acid. Well, it's not, it's not a painful thing in that sense at all, but to sit in silence every day in a place of serenity, where as soon as the horse's hoofs, as Vivekananda might have said, cease being heard in the street outside, 
And as soon as nobody is coming in to bother you, talk to you, plus or minus, the office, the family, whatever, all of a sudden you got a sense, you know, the heartbeat thing, the, the, the blood pressure thing. They know about that in Massachusetts. They, they, the library is teaching meditation for, for uh, you know, high blood pressure. You begin to settle down. And then you open yourself for what one of our dear devotees calls, who loves to meditate in here, spiritual Disneyland. Just in receptivity. You're not going to forefigure what's going to happen. But in openness and yearning and receptivity. And you can put it any way you want. I'd like to be a more peaceful person. I'd like to be happier. Yes, and you can even personalize if you like. You know, oh Lord, I'm seeking a love that won't let me down. Even the most perfect, say marriage, very likely one of them's going to die before the other. Most perfect marriage. So I'm, I'm asking you, Lord, for something that will not go away. It'll be 100% every day. I'm asking for nothing less than infinite existence, knowledge, bliss. Can you help me? And the feeling comes from the all, from the surrounding, from the one, from the environment that you now find yourself placed in. Whoa, this is a lot more wonderful, a lot more um, resilient, a lot more flexible, a lot more peaceful, a lot more serene, a lot more encouraging, a lot more self-reliant, a lot more contributive of self-esteem at a deep level than I've had before. So they trot into the, into, the, uh, into the laboratory. And what they say can happen is this. We were talking about something that's hanging us up. Because one of the first postulates is we've got to head for the whole and not mistake the parts for the whole. Mary and John, my puppy, my grandchild. If a devotee around here, particularly if he's from India, gets a grandchild, I'll tell you. He, he may live far away, you know. There's two things going to happen. If he lives a thousand miles away, we get to see him a couple of times a year. If he lives close by, we may never see him again. Because he's babysitting, he's taking care of the grandchildren. So we must remember that with this approach that Vedanta points out, that the spiritual life points out, you don't lose anything. You really don't have to give up what it is really that you're seeking, like love, for example. Because now you're seeing love in the baby. You're seeing God in the baby. You're seeing the spirit in the baby and in your wife and your husband. And finally, we listen to these wonderful people who went up on the mountain and gave their whole life to the spiritual journey and say, ah, now I see. That's what we loved in all of these things in the world all along. You know the phrase from, I guess it's Chindogya, what is it? The husband does not love the wife for the sake of the wife, but for the sake of the self that dwells within the wife. The wife does not love the husband for the sake of the husband, but for the sake of the spirit that is the husband at essence. The parents don't love the children for the sake of the children, but for the sake of God that dwells in the children. The children eventually come to the understanding in a lifetime that they esteem and have loved their parents all their lives as Moses adjoined, Moses adjoined us to do because it was always God that was dwelling in the home in the form of those parents. And the things that they took for granted or ignored and finally realized, what mom did for me. How hard dad worked for me. The selflessness, the spiritual qualities, you see, that we can see in shining in each other. All right, let's just go on down the road a little bit. There's some things that start happening. Oh, we're talking about this business, about, about trying to transform the whole idea of who we are and what we're seeking, the whole, the one, and how it, it relates to our everyday life. But the, the seers of this group, the Bhakti Raja boys, they're playing as partners in the game. They'll say, I sat down one time to meditation. Maybe after some years. And my heart was sore. And I thought that I was maybe even caught by the, the brambles, the, the twigs, the branches of the trees of this world. 
And all of a sudden, I went up and up and up, like an elevator. You used to have elevator men, fifth floor, seventh floor, eighth floor, tenth floor, heading for the roof. One time, up in vision, and I, after some kind of wonderful thing going on here, maybe he remembers what it was, Pooja or something here at night. We got in a car, and we headed for the mountains out here, the, uh, the Angeles Crest. Because we knew, or we love stars and galaxies and all of that, because John Dobson, it's our cathedral of the universe, that there was a comedy in town. Of course, they're all named by Japanese because the Japanese stay up all night looking for them, often through Dobsonian telescopes. Well, this was Hayakutake. And we heard it was beautiful. And L.A. was totally socked in. So against all reason, it was fairly late at night, we, we started heading up the mountains. Fog, 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 cloud, 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 nothing. And any sensible person, that's the whole point, don't you see? Any common sense person, and these are the ones you have to watch out for, the practical people, say, oh, you know, give it up. You shouldn't have started in the first place. Ridiculous. You've been out on the road an hour, go back. And we thought rationally that was the thing to do. I suspect both of us did. But for reasons best known to Atmavijananda, he gunned it. I'm talking about meditation now. He put the pedal to the metal. And against all reason, we kept going up through the fog and the clouds. And all of a sudden, my friends, we broke through. It was a starry night, cool and clear. And the very clouds, don't you see, that had been our problem to begin with became our friend now on the top side because it kept the light pollution down from L.A. We couldn't see any light. And here, as the fellows say, the little girls and boys, oh, my God. <laughs> I say it of set purpose is Hayakataki. And it had a tail, which you couldn't see from Earth, from, you know, the land that was the length of about five full moon diameters, five or six diameters. Wasn't all that bright, but it was there and it was huge. Our journey had been report rewarded. So now this fellow says, you know, one of these people in our scriptures, first-hand eyewitness laboratory reports, I was at this for a bunch of years and I was working as hard as I could and all of a sudden I got tripped up and I just felt awful. I was in the brambles. I was in the branches. As uh, Wordsworth says so beautifully, the world was too much with me. Late and soon, getting and spending, I lay waste my powers. But I was in a jam. And all of a sudden, because I had worked so hard and practiced for so many years, so many ways to all the four yogas, and now I'm in this mood, I went up and up and up three or four levels. All of a sudden, I burst through. It wasn't me. It was God, the way we say it. Just picked me up and put me in a land of love. The very thing that I was shuddering, the alcohol, whatever, shuddering about, all of a sudden, that very conditioning, that very stimulus response that was causing me the trouble, I just went through, went higher and higher and higher, more and more and more, love, love. And all of a sudden, there it was. And I realized a bunch of things. That the person that says about another person calls a man sinner. And especially the person who in a moment of grief or some people say guilt and so forth gets confused. The worst of all comes to the thought turning that light upon himself calls himself a sinner. What nonsense. In this land that they've achieved, that they've arrived in by the grace of God, where all is light and love and glory and love, it's love that does it. Love made me whole. You realize that you're one with that love and that your nature infinitely is pure. Don't you see, my friends, as the Swamis have been trying to tell us for all these years, if we weren't perfection itself already, we could never achieve perfection. How can something which is radically unlike another thing ever become that thing? It's because it's within us. It's because it's calling us. 
It's because the love that will not let me go that we're looking for in the wrong place. See, my friends, you know, alcoholics are some of the sweetest people I've ever met in my life, you know. I, I'm talking about pretty personal knowledge here and whatnot. And the ones that are sweet are very sweet. They're seeking for unalloyed happiness. They're seeking for all these things. The only trouble is, after Sunday night or a binge, however many days, two, three days, it's over. There's a headache, a hangover. And as the Swamis in India say, they're just wonderful. They're so much fun, you know. They say the trouble is, you can never get drunk enough. Until one day, things begin to happen because you tried. Sure, we're skeptics. We meet a Brahmananda and so forth, and we say, well, you know, what a man this fellow was. Uh, when Swami met him at the very beginning, let's see if we can just find this. It was unbelievable. He, he found a man here that he had never seen the like of in his life, the man that founded this place. He said, when I first met Maharaj, meaning a man of God, a man of synthesis, Swamiji was a great bhakta, you know. I, I've, I've told you before, if you remember, that the greatest path of devotion, the greatest statement, poem of it that I've ever heard, Shankar came up with it too, is by Vivekananda. Swami Brahmananda is saying, when I first met Maharaj, Swami Brahmananda, I was a boy of 18. I did not know anything about God or the realization of God. But I felt drawn to him as to a long-lost friend who was very near and dear to me. I had never felt such a love before in my life. It was the love of parents and the love of a friend all in one. Everyone had the same experience. Once I asked Swami Subodhananda, another disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, the reason for this all-satisfying love which emanated from Maharaj. The Swami replied, God is love. Maharaj has realized God. Therefore, he is full of love. So as these people begin to get the fruits of their meditation, and it can be years, but not that long, Swami Brahmanand himself, the skeptic, he said, uh, okay, remember, these fellows are full of hundreds and thousands of hints. All you got to do is read the Eternal Companion. Swami asked us to read this book every day, his disciples. And after a lifetime, two or three of us said, well, maybe he really meant it, you know. <laughs> and in the morning, Swami says, well, if you, want to, if you want to get a good start, you don't get the old tin lizzie out, crank it up in a cold morning, you might just want to read something from the scriptures before you go into meditation. It's a high point of my day. High point of my day. Now then, we find out that, to use this metaphor that we've used, that right there in the Bhakti Sutras, Narada is saying the devotee may first become intoxicated with bliss. Then having realized that, he becomes inert and silent and takes his delight in the Atman. Sri Ramakrishna described a perfect soul in the following ways. Don't you understand, we're not asking, I'm not saying give up stuff. I'm saying if I give you a $100 bill, you know, uh, well, who's this these days, Ben Franklin, nice picture, and then take it back from you just as I'm handing it to you and hand you a $1 bill instead. You won't take it? You're going to hang on 100 How about a 1000 Come on, like an auction. 100,000, 100,000, 100,000, 100, twice, three times, three times, any more? Million, million dollars in the back row. How about infinity? A love that will not let me go, today, tomorrow, forever. How about the whole enchilada? How about finally clicking on the light and getting the idea that the super lotto jackpot is within? Remember today we've gone down with those helmets and they're not there the coral reef. Sri Ramakrishna described a perfect soul in the following ways. He said, sometimes he'll act like a five-year-old child or he may seem intoxicated or mad or he may be apparently inert, silent, and motionless. His actions and motives are selfless without trying to be selfless just as a flower emits its fragrance. 
Now, Swami's saying, I've also seen, because he, Brahmananda, the man that was, the, it's, it means, you know, the bliss, the bliss of, of the all, of Brahman. You could say the bliss of the love of God. 100%. So, also see how Lumen souls may see, harder than diamond, in quote. Though in their inner nature, their quotes tender than the petals of a flower. What a thing to strive for in our own lives. My own master would sometimes scold me vehemently. Yet I always knew in my heart of hearts that he was correcting me before because he loved me. This actually happened in their relationship. He said to me one day, the mother holds the baby on her lap and spanks it. And the baby cries, mother, mother. He becomes intoxicated in italics. There's a line in the song by Ram Prasad, a devotee of the Divine Mother. My mind is intoxicated because I have drunk of the nectar at the blessed feet of Mother. But to drunkards, I see to be a drunkard. And then to Nogya Upanishad, we find a passage. It's all about Narada which symbolically expresses the idea of spiritual drunkenness in the following way. In the world of Brahman, there's a lake whose waters are like nectar, and whosoever tastes thereof is straightway drunk with joy. And beside that lake is a tree which yields the juice of immortality. Swami Chivananda, our new friend on Friday night, told us one day, get up early in the morning. Remember Ben Franklin? Yeah? You know? Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Hey, get up in the morning and meditate and perform japa to, japa to your heart's content. That will keep your mind on a higher level. I myself do that. I meditate in the morning, and the whole day passes, as it were, in intoxication. So not only do we not give up anything, we find the love of God in our families, we find the work of God in our work, the 40-hour work week. We find things beginning to emanate from the experience, at least of the experience of the seers to whom we've given our hearts because we love them so much, they're so lovable. And it begins to kind of manifest in things like justice, in things like mercy. When Brahmananda would look at one, he would look straight through you. Kind of like invisibility, you know, a light bulb, <laughs> clear glass. Swami said, you didn't mind that. We've all experienced that with the Swamis. Because there was such love and mercy coming out of his eyes. You know, I love Lincoln. I, I guess some of you know that. I just I just adore the old fella. And, and uh, I kind of get over a lifetime the idea that he kind of grows on you. Carl Sandburg used to say that. We're talking about things that happen in life like forgiveness, service, surrender to the ideal, to God. Very, very difficult. <laughs> well worth trying. Remember the story of the fellow that said, it, it's Bette Midler's great song about the person who never experiences the joy of human communion because she's afraid to dance. Someone sent me this the other day. I think it's very interesting. Now, I'm not asking you to follow this. And I don't know how the women feel about this in the room. Some of them may find it okay. Some of them say, it's not for me. That's the whole point, Snowflake. <laughs> That's the whole point. This fellow says, when I meditated on the word guidance, we're talking about surrender now. I kept seeing dance at the end of the word. I remember that doing God's will is a lot like dancing. When one person, he said, realizes this and perhaps wants the other person to lead, sometimes we do ask God to do that. Sometimes we say, Dear God, I think I can do it on my own. He's happy. He claps his hands and says, That's what I wanted. I'm a boy. You remember what Rita Hayworth said? She said, I did everything Fred Astaire did in those dancing scenes, except I did it backwards in heels. So this is the idea of surrendering to God, because a person who surrenders his thinking to another human being and lets that other person do his thinking for him, 
or much, much worse, a person who decides to think for another man, and I'm talking about church people in general, making big mistake. But the idea is surrendering to God means that we realize we are ultimately one with God. And the less ego, the more God. So out of a loving relationship, we want to invite God into our hearts in whatever way. This is a metaphor. It says, then both bodies begin to flow with music. One gives gentle cues, perhaps with a nudge to the back or pressing lightly in one direction or another. It's as if the two become one, moving beautifully. The dance, the dance of life, partly, I submit, the relationship with the one, with the infinite, with God, takes surrender, willingness, his love, and attentiveness from one person and gentle guidance and skill from the other. I want to give you a couple of quick thoughts because I love to be concrete. The greatest example of what we're talking about here that I've ever seen in my life, which is service. The Vedanic principle is this, that when you want to serve somebody, <clears throat> yeah, you can try to figure out what he wants. And a first-class disciple will do it for the guru before the guru even thinks about it. But it's not that he's substituting his will. See, it's very subtle, all these things. So the idea of service is when we come to Vedanta, we're, we're given to understand sometimes we may be lucky you know, when somebody, some big guy that knows how to do things and everything, like Gurdas or Thurabhadra over there, Swamiji, when he has something to do, you do something, do it. Don't give him a better idea. Don't say, well, you know, I think it might be, you could do it this way. Or do it a different way. Because of love. Because of trying to develop our own ability to be that kind of person. Total service. You do it his way. And then as the years go on, you say, you know, I was thinking the other night, I wonder if I could do it this way. Good boy, try it. Or as happened in the case of Henry Ford, he went to Europe once, some guy came back, he built a whole new car, you know, and asked him about it, he took it apart. <laughs> but the point is, service implies you're loving the Spirit of God and the other person serving the Spirit of God. You're not going to put your own. You're going to have to try to find the lamb, lying down with the lamb at least in your own heart. So the greatest example of service I ever ran into was my brother-in-law's horse. He was a doctor, and he was a great man, and he came from Arizona. He bought a quarter horse, a young boy in Arizona that had got put $1,000 worth of training in on this horse, don't you see? And now he wanted to go to college, so he wanted to sell his horse, sold it to Blair. Got up on that horse one day, my friends, this is so counter to some of our approaches, particularly the male approach, you know. You would just lightly touch the rein to the right. Hardly touch it. And the horse would go that way. And the left. And it was a willing thing. It wasn't a robot. It wasn't a destroyed person. It was a fulfilled. That horse was greater than a human at that point, certainly greater than me because I've remembered it all in my life. There was such love there, such unity, such oneness. So we talked a little about service. We talked about forgiveness, although that's a huge, wonderful subject. We might get into that another day. I'm thinking in terms, it happened to me the other day about the Armenians and so forth. I'm an honorary Armenian. And a friend of mine on the phone just turned my mind around completely. He didn't want to talk about it the way I did at that level. He wanted to talk about a blanket of forgiveness. He wanted to talk about a grandfather and a father, the grandson of one of whom had killed the son of the other. And they got together, and the most difficult thing in his life, the father, was to accept the grandfather's invitation to come see his grandson in jail. And then he realized eventually that there's a tragedy, my friends, on both sides of the gun. And as happens rarely in life, these men transcended the relative plane into a spiritual domain. I'm going to give you a quick one about mercy. 
Brother Lincoln, they called about Lincoln from Illinois, you know, Abe Lincoln, Illinois. Well, Abe Lincoln was born in, in Kentucky, very likely, which is the Ireland for the Irishman. For me, that's what I think of as the naval of the United States. A lot of good came out of Kentucky. And at the age of six, he translated over into Indiana, where he grew up. But as a young man, he went to Illinois. Now, Abba Rupananda is a man of the South, and a very great soul in my book. And this is a secret probably most of you would never guess, but I'm his puppy dog. I'm his puppy dog. And he made me that way decades ago. Sent me a postcard from Springfield, Illinois, and from Salem, New Salem, Illinois, where Lincoln went as a lawyer. And he didn't need to do that, don't you see? But he did, and he's won me over. Yeah, I'd shine his shoes. I'd like to be, for I'm a ribbon, I'd like that horse was, for me. So one day Lincoln's out there, don't you see, and he, he, most of that time in Illinois, he, he didn't practice law in an office, he rode the circuit, a lot of it, 20 years, long time. One day, he's defending a lady. This is supposed to be real time now, so fasten your seatbelt. She's up for murder. She murdered her husband, an abusive husband. And he's in a side room with her at one point, <clears throat> and she says to him, will you get me a drink of water? So he goes over slowly, as you can imagine, you know, gangfully, opens the window, <clears throat> and then he says on the way out, he said, you know, I heard tell one time, a fellow told me that he said you can get a pure, cool drink of water in Tennessee. And he walked out, came back in, she's gone. Well, here pretty directly after a while comes the bailiff, everybody, what, where is, what, what, what? Says, I don't know. Said, I told her that I heard a fellow say one time, you could get a cool, pure drink of water in Tennessee. Now, just between you and me, nobody's told me this, and I don't have a right to interpolate it in the record, but I figure he, he I really kind of decided in my own mind that, that, uh, that he came to the conclusion, he figured that he lost the case. Mercy. Sherlock Holmes let a woman go like that one time over a steamboat, got her back to Europe. She's some kind of duchess or some nobility. But the point about the mercy that comes in human relations is that the ego is so small on the one hand. So he probably not a bald out from her touch. It's a great story. They still tell it at Trabuco, the boys that knew about it. Eddie Siegel was there. Bald out this loving, roly poly swami. Endomorph, huh? A bhakti by right and by nature and by everything. Someone's have to work on it. And after a while, I just got up quietly and left the room. And Swami said, what can I do with him? I can't do anything with him. He's got no ego. That's the man who, when he came back here after going to France, very difficult situation after World War II, said everything that I took with me when I left here to go to France. Swami Prabhupada is sending there. He said, I received here when Swami said to me, give them love even if you never mention the name of God. So mercy, surrender, forgiveness. Because we hear them say that on a given day, not at an easy time of meditation, but at a, a time of real frustration. They'd almost given up like that bird, that seagull finally lights on the, on the flagpole, the ship that went to sea. Maybe they're in a receptive mood. Maybe they're in a, 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 you know, I surrender mood, I give up. Maybe they're just thinking, still trying to solve the problem at the level that it was presented to them, the early world. And all of a sudden, up and up and up through all these floors. Even the very difficulties that we think we're facing. It's this, it's that, it's that. And just through more love, more, more, you get out beyond the clouds in L.A. And the love is there waiting for you. And you see that you are one with it. And that you're not small. Because you're not egotistical. See what's saying anymore like we are, you know what I mean? You're one with the grandeur. You're one with the love. You're one with all of these qualities. There's a reason we're here today, because we've seen them in our own fashion. 
small that it, though it may be, in these great men who have come from India to offer us the light, to offer us the way. Did somebody want to play a little bit? I'm awful glad we get together because you know why. You had to find me up. Give me a real chance to go into the land of exploration. So after we take our little moment of, of the, you know, taking this in like a sponge, a moment of contemplating thought, uh, while this part of our service goes, I, I wish you all so well, my brothers and sisters, so well. Because in your journey and your success is my own. Come on, son. Give us a little meditation music. Pioneer country churches used to call the church, define it as the fellowship, the fellowship of the believers. And I always feel that community spirit when I come to see them. Are the ushers coming forward or are they going to do something else today? <clears throat> I'm ready to go out and try to practice some of this with y'all. You are my mentors, you are my edifiers, you are my uplifters, you are my models, my role models. And I mean that very, very deeply and very sincerely. I think I'm going to read this over the music because music and poetry go so well together. It ends and this. Let me quote it, this connection, description given by a disciple of Swami Brahmananda of the divine inebriation he experienced while he was visiting the temple of Jagannath at Puri. He has always felt that such an experience was possible to him only through the grace of his guru and through the grace of the Lord. These are his own words. I went on a pilgrimage to the temple of Jagannath with a brother disciple of mine. One of the priests was our guide. In order to enter the innermost shrine, one has to go by a passage to the left of the shrine inside the huge temple. As we were about to enter this passage, I suddenly heard a sound like that of thunder coming to strike me. I must admit here that I was not approaching the shrine with any special reverence or devotion that day, but he'd been working on it see, a lot. <laughs> and he said, indeed, I was rather dry in my heart, in parenthesis, he says, for a moment as the thunder, in quotes, actually struck me. This is experience. I was terrified. But I had no time to go on being afraid, for I lost consciousness. I faintly heard my brother disciple asking the priest to take hold of my left arm. He himself was already holding my right arm. After they'd taken my arms, I was not conscious that anyone was supporting me. I must have had a little consciousness left in me, though I was not aware who I was or where I was. I felt intoxicated, as if I had drunk bottles of wine, and I remembered I was dragging my feet. And as I came nearer to the sanctum sanctorum, there arose within me in English, the word in italics, God, God, God. Although my mother tongue is Bengali, and as I entered into the inner shrine, I became completely unconscious of the external world. 
all I had was an awareness that I was experiencing a vision which suddenly opened up. I do not know if my eyes were open or closed. I did not see the shrine with walls around me, nor did I see the crowd of pilgrims who must have been there, nor did I see the images of the deities in the shrine. I only saw an ocean of light and waves of bliss striking me which increased in intensity and beggared all description. I do not know how long I was in the shrine, but I do remember that when I was brought out of the shrine and stood in the open courtyard of the temple, I felt that I was being held by my arms. I stood up straight and shook myself free. We heard that young man tell the story from his own lips. And now may the Lord bless us and keep us. May he make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. May he lift up the light of his countenance upon us and give us peace. Om Shanti, 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 Peace.